How Therapy Speak Turned Victimhood into Currency, an essay by Matt Ruby. That's me. Fine, I'll play along. I'm sitting with discomfort and respecting boundaries and being present while naming the trauma of my lived experience. I'm processing my pain and examining the codependent relationships I've participated in due to my avoidant attachment style. I've been attempting to heal this trauma with a combination of mindfulness-based stress reduction, cognitive behavioral therapy, meditation, and plant medicine. These tools have helped me avoid spiraling as a response to my disorders, which include anxiety, depression, and let's say a sprinkling of OCD. As I move forward in my healing journey, I know I need to do the work, be an active listener, hold space, and uh, you know what? I, I can't anymore. Okay, look, sure, there's truth in all of that, but communicating like this offends me as a lover of words. It reeks of mindless therapy speak and how we keep repeating buzzwords until they're sapped of meaning. Don't get me wrong, it's good that we're finally talking about mental health openly. I get that it's been in the shadows too long and pain has been caused by all that hiding, silence, and repression. So I guess I should cheer on Prince Harry, Kevin Love, Simone Biles, and the other celebs shining a light on depression and other mental health issues. It encourages others to be open about their issues and lessens the stigma. That's great. And yet... There's something icky about it, too. The more we turn our trauma into public revelations, the more it feels like we're turning victimhood into a form of currency. Plus, it often smells like yet another way predatory capitalism is fracking us. He's being open about his depression. Well, great. And now he's a paid spokesman for the online therapy company Talkspace. Ugh. Gross. Once an athlete's mental health struggles become ammo for a Nike commercial, that vulnerability starts to feel like a ploy. It all feeds into a system where we pathologize, overtreat, and overmedicate people, and it minimizes the challenges faced by those who suffer in a truly depthful way. Now, my therapist tells me we're not supposed to compare people's pain, and I get that, but something feels off when we're lumping together PTSD with seasonal affective disorder. Oh, you're a war veteran who attempted suicide? I totally get it. I am really bummed out by winter. Something just feels off there. All this therapy speak feels like an attack on language. It dilutes words that once had impact. Let's get real. Hurt feelings aren't trauma. Conflict isn't abuse. Silence isn't violence. Words aren't weapons. Loving tidiness isn't OCD. Pointing out an argument's flaws isn't gaslighting. And mean tweets aren't death threats. Talking like this renders these words increasingly meaningless. Part of why we're obsessed with the language of hurt is because there are benefits to broadcasting one's pain, especially online. Go public with whatever you're struggling with and you'll get likes, followers, and a stream of supportive comments. Make enough noise and you can get someone fired or pimp your Patreon or become a spokesperson for some new healthy talk better mind com space app thingy. The dirty little secret about all these public revelations is they're often a manifestation of ego. Frequently, what's being conveyed? I'm special in my anxiety, depression, suffering, trauma, or whatever. It's wildly different than everyone else's. You just wouldn't understand. And voila, just like that, you're the center of the universe. It's an I, me, mine mentality where the ego gets to indulge itself. Look at me. While simultaneously playing the role of the victim. Also, feel bad for me. Now, forgive me for getting all Buddhist about it, but what if we're all suffering? What if we've all endured trauma of one sort or another? I mean, just being born is grounds for having PTSD. You're floating along in the birth canal, doing fine, chilling out, and then wham-bam, welcome to the world. No wonder babies come out of the gate screaming and crying. 
What if we're all trying to heal? What if, despite my suffering, I'm just like everybody else? The horror. Have you noticed how much the word self comes up in wellness talk? Self-help, self-care, self-love. The unsaid message, I'm all about me and taking care of me. It's an approach that breeds narcissism and diminishes compassion, which inherently involves letting go of the spotlight and focusing on those around you. Plus, it lets you do pretty much anything and get away with it if you label it right. Here's a bit I've been doing on stage. It's about self-care. It's crazy how we talk about it online. People will just post something where they're like, what did I do yesterday? Well, I binge-watched Netflix for seven hours, then I took a three-hour nap, then I ate a pint of Ben and Jerry, so hashtag self-care Sunday. Uh, That's just a cry for help until the end. Everything about that sounded like a suicide note until you got to the hashtag. I mean, is this how we're going to declare rock bottom in the future with this kind of performative nonsense? You know, we'll just be like, oh, what happened to me? I mixed horse tranquilizers with fentanyl, drove off the side of the road, and then my wife left me and I got fired from my job. So, you know, hashtag Wellness Wednesday. We've just gotten so into self-care, we've forgotten how to care for others. It's all keto cereal and meditation retreats while stepping over homeless people. I mean, you can self this and self that, but the solution frequently lies in the more challenging realm of what you do for others. We can hate on organized religion, but at least thinking about others is baked into most of them. It'd be nice to see more of that external focus in the wellness world. These days, we mostly don't have faith in religion or, for that matter, anything bigger than ourselves. Institutions can't be trusted, the mainstream media is fake news, history books are filled with lies, and science is up for grabs. The result is the elevation of the authentic individual and trust your gut, personal feelings. Maybe it's best seen in all this do your research. Everything is turning into an altar of you. And then there's the class status element to all this. It's rarely janitors, firefighters, meat packers, or people who've committed to a life of service talking about wellness like this. They've got to get to work. Every time someone mentions their Myers-Briggs personality type, they're basically identifying themselves as someone who's got plenty of free time. I'm an INTJ, by the way. In fact, it feels like those who suffer the least seem to drone on about mental health the most. The conversation takes place mostly among wealthy, usually white, college-educated people. An obsession with mental health? It's the new luxury item, a Prada bag for those who've renounced possessions but still want status. The real question I always want to ask these folks, how do you afford your therapy lifestyle? So what's the right way to be compassionate? Here's Buddhist nun and scholar Pima Chadron on something called idiot versus wise compassion. The quote starts, idiot compassion refers to something we all do a lot of and call it compassion. In some ways, it's what's called enabling. It's the general tendency to give people what they want because you can't bear to see them suffering. Basically, you're not giving them what they need. You're trying to get away from your feeling of, I can't bear to see them suffering. In other words, you're doing it for yourself. You're not really doing it for them. Again, that was Buddhist nun and scholar Pima Chadron. Wise compassion, that's a heavier lift that often requires deeper work. The idiot compassion that we keep offering, it's easier. But often it's just a short-term fix that doesn't actually make anyone's life better in the long run. Now let's welcome producer Jeremiah McVeigh. Hey, Jeremiah. 
So I feel like this is the essay that you've done so far for this podcast where maybe I feel like in my head I have the most pushback, sure. um, but we'll, we'll see how it all comes together. Okay. Um, but one thing I just wanted to bring up was that when we started to work together on a previous project, the reason I had originally invited you to be a part of that project was I believe it was in the context of the time of some older comedians like Bill Maher and Jerry Seinfeld, I want to say, maybe some others uh, were kind of up in arms that kids on college campuses weren't as receptive to them as they would like them to be, or, or to comedians generally, certain comedians, mm -hmm. not all, I'm sure. Um, and you had something that you posted on Facebook or Twitter or something, basically saying like, maybe they need to keep in mind that usually the college kids end up being right in the end. Yeah, there's, um, there's like, rarely been a time in the past where college kids all agreed on some, you know, moral or civil rights issue. And then 20 years later, we're like, well, they were wrong. They were off base. It's usually like, oh, yeah, they're just sort of predicting the future. Right, right. So based off of that, I find a little bit of your narrative here, not confusing, but like I'm just maybe slightly surprised by it sometimes. I mean, I understand it. I understand the arguments you're making. But um, like, I, I think there's an element of it to me that I have a similar kind of opinion about, or maybe another way of putting it is like, for most of the time when people are dealing with something, whether it's in public, even if it shouldn't be, or whatever, I'm usually like, whatever you got to do, I don't need to pay attention to it necessarily. And that's how, so I'm kind of the like, I'm just gonna walk past this and not not engage mode if it's something that I feel like is, quote unquote, inauthentic, or just a bit much. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like, especially in this day and age, we got broken by the internet and technology. And so it makes a certain amount of sense that people are kind of in some haphazard ways trying to use that same thing that broke them to find some sort of, uh, fix, if that makes sense, you know, of like reaching out to people over social media channels or whatever. I'm not saying it's the best mode. It's not something I tend to like to do, but I'm not going to also say that I haven't like posted about something that was happening to me in my life at times because it was just the easiest way for me to let people know about it, uh, who I wanted to let know about it, you know? Well, I think you're tapping into something with bringing up technology and, and social media and smartphone addiction as something that really cracked us as a society and mm -hmm. as individuals in a way. And I think uh, a, a lot of this first of all, the performative aspect of, you know, mental health stuff and wellness that's happening right now is in response to like, it is oftentimes a good way to get clout online, to mm -hmm. promote a new album, to uh, sell a book to, you know, uh, and then on a, on a smaller scale, just to have people pay attention to you, even if you're just, you know, some, some younger person in high school or college or, or wherever else. And, you know, it's not just young people. I think old people, are, older people are also increasingly in this mode, but I think there's something about the, I am so unique and I am so special that ties in with what technology has done to us, which has helped us all exist in our own bubbles and live in sort of this confirmation bias world of uh, just everyone telling us we're right and that, you know, we're unique and we're special. And we have like, you know, I, I would say smartphones are sort of ego building devices that, you know, sort of shut out the rest of the world and just, you know, increasingly enable us to live inside our own bubble and, and sort of world of confirmation bias. And I think 
that's part mm-hmm. of what you're seeing in, in the way a lot of people are uh, diagnosing themselves and uh, talking about what's wrong with them. And, you know, the fact that, you know, what is it, 30 to 40 percent of, of people in this country are now on uh, different forms of, you know, pharmaceutical pills for, for brain disorders. And it's like, OK, uh, did our brains all break at the exact same time? Did we all have like you know, massive brain chemistry issues or has something in our society sort of enabled us to like see ourselves as damaged or broken and and unique in this way. And so I think uh, I'm just trying to sort of bring in that mode of examination to it. I certainly, you know, if people are suffering, you know, and need help, I'm not trying to, you know, tell them they're wrong or stop them from getting it. But I just think uh, at some point it's wise for us to, instead of constantly labeling, labeling our own minds as disordered to examine whether it's our culture that's disordered, whether it's our environment that's creating a lot of these feelings as opposed to us being like each as individuals so unique and special and, and uh, having some problem with our brains that no one else can understand or has, which I think oftentimes is, you know, like I said in the essay, a, a manifestation of ego. I, I don't know. I always just feel weird trying to police what other people should be talking about in the world um, is, is where I come from on it, you know, like, and again, like if I see someone doing it in what I think is kind of an icky way, like I, it puts me off and I'm sort of like, well, I'm not going to listen to this person anymore, or I'm going to like go, go somewhere else to read something else, you know, but well, maybe I'm um, talking to the people reacting as a, yeah, yeah, everyone can say anything they want to say. I'm not saying it shouldn't be allowed, but like, do we all have to respond? Do we all have to be like, Oh my God, what you've you've suffered so much. You are so special. You, you have a unique, you know, path that that no one else has endured. Or can we be like, you know, like, uh, again, like what the Buddha says is we are all suffering that is that is our natural state of being in the universe is to live with suffering and angst and trauma and now the question is how do we want to respond to it and and what is our way of navigating it as opposed to you know being attached to it and and being like uh identifying it as who we are and you know demanding that the rest of the world treat us in accord with that view Sure. Well, here's maybe another potential piece of this. Sometimes I think people like kind of put it on you. Like I've been in the situation before where like I've had something happen in my life and I kind of broadcast it out there just because it's like the easiest way for me to kind of give people an update. And then sometimes I will get like responses that just make me feel weird. You know, like people are like or overreading into the situation <laughs> in a way of like, I'm like, I wasn't even saying it was that bad, you know, whatever I'm talking about. Yeah. And like this actually happened just yesterday or the day before I'm working on a script and uh, about people, cultures around the world that have been uh, traumatized essentially and almost lost. And I said something about like, I just keep having to stop because it makes me so angry working on this. And I wasn't saying that of like, woe is me. I was just saying sort of like it adds up, like when you read about what has happened to different cultures over time. And I got so many people responding uh, sort of like, um, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that or something. I was like, that's not that was not the point of what I was saying. Um, So I don't know. I I think sometimes people interpret incorrectly, too. Well, I think we go back to what technology and social media does. It breeds this whole sort of performative aspect of things Mm -hmm. of like, oh, 
you you're posting something like this this is kind of sucky to be going through all this and then people are like oh i've you know i i hear your pain i want you to know you've been seen and like this and that and like we're all just sort of like uh in this mode of like also the algorithm really likes it you you want you want to get you know the most views on something right. post about your trauma post about like you're suffering post about someone who's died or that you've lost or, you know, how you're going through a divorce or whatever else it is, or your, your disorder, then you're going to get like the spotlight will shine upon you. You will receive all this, you know, uh, com- these compassionate responses. You will get all these likes and you will be called brave and like, you know, think about where the incentives lie as opposed to someone who's like, instead trying to process whatever they're going through and get better and not perform it and not, you know, put it out there in, in some public way, but instead is doing the work in a more internal private way and how much our society isn't incentivizing that. Well, is there anything you want to end on here? No, I mean, I appreciate the pushback and I get that like, uh, I, I've, I've gotten in quote unquote trouble for articulating these views before. And I understand that, uh, you know, it, like I'm, my, I, that's why I like that, uh, wise compassion versus idiot compassion notion mm-hmm. so much, because I think it gets at something, which is like, how are you really helping people? If you're, if you're just y- yes, anding anything that they say and telling them, uh, they're right. Are you really helping them? Are you giving them what they need? Or are you just giving them what they want and what's the easiest path out for you? And I think, you know, that's something for all of us to consider when we're, we're dealing with the people in our lives, you know, what's, what's the most depthful, like really compassionate way to interact with someone? Is it just, you know, agreeing with them and telling them they're right? Or is it sometimes pushing back? And now for some quickies. The notion of an Irish exit just makes me think Irish people are really polite. Thanks for not making it all about you, Irish people. I prefer home improvement videos to cooking videos because the guy teaching you how to fix a sink never has to tell you about his life history. It's never, before I show you which wrench to choose, let me tell you about my grandma's hometown in Sicily. Here's a life hack. Never take any advice from someone who spends hours every week talking into a microphone. Howard Stern, Joe Rogan, Rachel Maddow, it doesn't matter who they are. At that point, their lives are about filling airtime, not being right. Huh. Wait a second. You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at H-E-Y dot com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rube's Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. 
And while you're at MattRubyComedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 